You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Mystery of the Universe, The Human Being, Image of Creation, also known, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 12. You will remember that I have discussed in detail how much criticism has come from many sides of the idea of a connection between the Christ event the appearance of Christ on earth, and cosmic events such as the course of the sun or the relation of the sun to the earth. The connection can only be understood when one studies more deeply all that we have hitherto said about the movements of the stellar system. Let us make a beginning in this direction today, for you will see that ultimately astronomy cannot really be studied at all without entering into a study of the whole being of man. I have already mentioned this, but we shall see how deeply grounded is the statement in the whole being of the world, for we can only understand something of the nature of the world or of the nature of man when we consider the two together, not separately, as is done at present. You will observe a curious fact in relation to this very matter, Namely, that materialism, if only it is not directly acknowledged to be such, is preferred by the religious denominations to spiritual science. That is, both Protestants and Roman Catholics prefer to consider the outer world in its various realms in a materialistic sense, rather than to inquire how the spiritual works in the world and embodies itself in material phenomena. In confirmation of this, you need only consider the Jesuits' views of natural science, which are strictly materialistic. From their point of view, the outer world, the cosmos, is only to be understood in the light of quite materialistic interpretations. In this way, the utmost care has been taken to protect a certain form of faith, which has been cultivated since the council held in Constantinople in 869, to protect it by keeping external science at the level of materialism. It is true that a kind of smokescreen has been spread through religion's apparent conflict with materialism, even in scientific realms. This, however, is only apparent. For it does not matter whether one says that there is spirit somewhere or whether one denies spirit altogether, if the material world itself is not explained spiritually. You know, perhaps, that astrophysics represents one of modern science's towering achievements. Its theories set out to study the material, starry world, to establish the material unity of the world accessible to the senses, Now, one of the greatest astrophysicists is a Roman Jesuit, Father Secchi. 
There is no difficulty in standing on the ground of modern material science and at the same time adhering to this shade of religious belief. As a matter of fact, a materialistic interpretation of the heavens is nowadays closer to the religious creeds and especially to one of the Jesuit persuasion than is spiritual science, for these creeds are particularly concerned not to enlighten the world about the relation of matter to spirit. The spiritual is meant to remain an independent form of belief in which nothing is said of a scientific study of the universe. The latter is to remain materialistic. For the moment it ceases to be so, it would have to go into what relates to the spiritual. It would have to speak of spirit. We must take this seriously. Otherwise, we should overlook the significant fact that Jesuit scientists are the most extreme materialists in the domain of science. They continually allege that man cannot approach the spiritual by researching into nature, and they take trouble to keep the spiritual as far removed as possible from such research. This can be traced even in Father Vassman's studies of ants. After these preliminary remarks, let us recall an important fact which apparently unfolds entirely in the spiritual world, but which, when we consider this part of our argument more closely, will make clear to us a parallel phenomenon between spiritual life and the life of the external world of stars. As you know, we divide the post-Atlantean period into epochs of civilization. First the old Indian, second the old Persian, third the Chaldean, Babylonian, Egyptian, fourth the Greco-Latin, and then there is the fifth in which we now live, beginning in the middle of the 15th century. A sixth will follow this, and so forth. I have frequently shown how the fourth epoch of this ongoing stream of post-Atlantean time began about the year 747 B.C. and ceased roughly speaking, about the middle of the 15th century. In fact, to be more accurate, it really ended in the year A.D. 1413. That was the fourth epoch, and we are now in the fifth. If we thus consider the succession of civilizations, we can describe their characteristics, bearing in mind the descriptions given in title Occult Science. Thus we can describe the Greco-Latin, in which the event of Golgotha occurred. But in doing so we need not refer to that event, for we can describe the epoch by connecting it with the preceding one. It is possible to describe the successive epochs in their fundamental nature, and to describe the epoch running from 747 B.C. to A.D. 1413, without any historical reference to an important event occurring during this period. Let us recall the time of the occurrence of the event of Golgotha, remembering all we know concerning the civilizations of the most advanced people of the time, the Greek, Roman, and Latin. Let us reflect that to these people the event of Golgotha was an unknown affair. It occurred in a small corner of the world, and the first mention of its effects is to be found in Tacitus, the Roman historian, one hundred years later. 
It was not observed by its contemporaries, least of all by the most cultured. Thus it becomes clear that there was no intrinsic historical necessity in man's evolution through the first three epochs of civilization and on into the fourth that the event of Golgotha should take place. This fact should receive close attention. The event actually took place 747 years after the beginning of the fourth post-Atlantean period. In trying to understand the event of Golgotha, we may say that it gave purpose and meaning to the life of the earth, that the earth would not have had this meaning if evolution had simply gone on as the outcome of the first, second, and third post-Atlantean epochs. The event of Golgotha came as an intervention from other worlds. This fact is not sufficiently considered. In modern times, several historians have alluded to it, but they have not been able to make anything of it. In fact, history practically omits the event of Golgotha. At most, the historians describe the influence of Christianity in the successive post-Christian centuries, but the actual intervention and impulse at work in the mystery of Golgotha itself is not described in any ordinary description of history. It would indeed be difficult to describe it if one kept to the ordinary methods of history. Certainly remarkable men, oddly enough, clergy among them, have attempted to explain the causes of the event of Golgotha. Pastor Kultoff, for instance, and many others, Pastor Kultoff tried to explain Christianity as a result of people's level of consciousness and economic conditions during the centuries preceding the appearance of Christ. But what did this explanation amount to? In effect, it said that people lived in certain economic conditions, and eventually the idea of Christ arose, the dream of Christ, the ideology of Christ, as it were. And from these arose Christology. It arose in humanity only as an idea. People like Paul and a few others described what had thus arisen as an idea as though it had occurred as a fact in a remote corner of the world. Such explanations mean an abolition of Christianity. It is, a note, it is a noteworthy phenomenon of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries that Christian pastors should set themselves the task of saving Christianity by eliminating Christ. People were ashamed to admit the facts of the rise of Christianity outright. They found it more satisfactory to explain the rise of Christology simply as the advent of an idea. Various streams of thought found their way into this domain. And one specialist, province of research, has very much come to the fore in our times, arising in the materialistic stream of culture which reached its culminating point in Marxism. Thus, Kultoff is a kind of Marxist pastor who tries to explain Christology through a sort of pious Marxism. Others have ridden other hobby horses in seeking an explanation for the phenomenon of Christianity. Why, then, should not each explain Christianity or explain Christ Jesus according to his own fancy? A certain psychiatrist explains Christ according to psychiatry, 
simply by saying that the mighty way in which Christ appeared in his time can be explained today from psychiatry's perspective as due to abnormal consciousness. This is no isolated case. And these are phenomena which must not be disregarded. Otherwise we do not see what is happening at the present time. They are, overall, symptoms of modern life. We must clearly recognize that what gave the earth its true meaning was an intervention from another world. We must distinguish two streams in human evolution, which indeed run side by side today, but only met for the first time at the beginning of our era. One is the Christian stream, which joined the continuous ongoing current from olden times. Natural science, for instance, has not yet accepted the event of Golgotha and flows on in a continuous evolutionary stream as though that event had never occurred. Spiritual science must endeavor to bring natural scientific study and Christology into harmony. For where has Christology any place if the Kant-Laplace theory holds sway and we look back to a primeval mist out of which everything originally formed? Would Christianity ultimately have any real universal significance for man on earth if people regarded the stars as Father Secchi does? He regards the starry heavens materialistically, not as though they gave rise to the event of Golgotha. And that becomes the chief reason for leaving it to other authorities to say how man should think of the event of Golgotha. If man can develop no knowledge about this event through his observation and understanding of the world, some other source must be found to tell him what he ought to think of it, and it is obvious that Rome is that source. All these things are so consistently, in a sense so grandly, thought out that it is inexcusable to be under any illusions about them at the present difficult and fateful time. These 747 years occupy a period in the world's evolution of the most telling significance. Speaking to us of all that is connected with more ancient periods of evolution, all that recalls and is related to past periods of time. A new period begins 747 years after the founding of Rome, which was really founded in 747 B.C., not the point of time given in ordinary history books. Here we have a fresh start, therefore. And if we now go back and take the periods of time, we shall have to say that everywhere we must add fresh periods and divisions of time to those already rightly assigned. An entirely new division of the course of time was brought about by the fact that the event of Golgotha fell in this period as an intervention in human evolution from outside, as it were. We must clearly realize the existence of these two streams in world evolution, insofar as man is interwoven with it. If we hold fast to this, we can now see something more. We know that according to the view of ordinary astronomy, the moon moves round the earth. In reality, the moon does not do this, as generally described. It, too, describes a lemniscate, but for the moment we will disregard this. 
The moon moves around the earth. While so doing, it also rotates around itself. Uh, I have already explained this. The moon is a polite lady and always turns the same side to us. Her back is always turned away from the earth, though not quite exactly, however. To be accurate, we ought to say that generally speaking, she always turns the same side to the earth. A seventh part of the concealed side of the moon, in fact, comes over the edge, as it were, so that really it is not quite always the face of the moon that is turned toward us. For after a time a seventh part comes forward from behind and another seventh part retires. This is compensated by the moon's further movements. A whole seventh does not vanish for good. It returns, and the moon reels as she goes round the earth. She actually wobbles and reels. I will only mention this here. In any elementary astronomy book you can look up further details. Could we transport ourselves to a far distant spot in the cosmos, which according to the calculations of astronomy would be a far distant star? This rotation of the moon on its own axis would take somewhat more than twenty-seven days. If, however, we transported ourselves to the sun, we would see that the movements of the sun and moon are not uniform. They move with dissimilar velocities. This rotation of the moon, seen from the sun, would not be the same as seen from a distant star, but would take rather more than twenty-nine days. Thus we may say that the stellar day of the moon is twenty-seven days, and its solar day twenty-nine days. This, of course, is connected with all the shifts and transitions which take place in the universe. As we know, the sun rises at a different vernal point every spring, moving round the whole ecliptic, round the whole zodiac in 25,920 years. These reciprocal movements mean that the stellar day of the moon is considerably shorter than its solar day. Bearing this in mind, we may see that this variation is remarkable. Every time we observe the moon's cycle from one full moon to another, we notice a difference between the aspects of sun and moon of almost two days. That shows us that we have to do with two movements in cosmic space, which indeed unfold together, but do not point back to the same origin. What I have set forth here in terms of the cosmos can be compared with what I have set forth previously from an ethical spiritual point of view. There is an interval between the beginnings of the individual epochs of civilization in the one stream and the beginnings of those connected with the Christ event. When it is full moon in sidereal time, we still have to wait for the full moon of solar time that takes longer to arrive. There is an interval each time. Thus we have two currents in the cosmos, two movements, one in which the sun takes part and another the moon. And they are of such nature that we may say, if we start from the moon stream, we find the sun stream intervening in it, just as the Christ event intervenes in the continuous stream of evolution as though coming from a quite different world. To the moon world, the sun world is a foreign world from a certain point of view. Now let us consider this subject once more.
from a third perspective. This we can do by trying to remember exactly how the human memory works, especially when we include dreams. We find, for instance, that what has taken place quite recently, although it does not enter the inner movements and course of the dream, plays into its picture world. Do not misunderstand me. We can, of course, dream of something that happened to us many years ago, but we do not do so unless something has recently occurred which is related by some thought or feeling to earlier years. The whole nature of dreams is in some way connected with quite recent occurrences. To observe such matters, of course, one needs to be able to notice the fine details of human life. If such be the case, observation will furnish as exact results as any exact science. To what is this due? It is due to the fact that a certain time is required in order that what we experience in our soul may be imprinted by the astral body upon the etheric, approximately from two and a half to three days, though sometimes after only one and a half or two days, but never without having slept upon it. What we have experienced in our intercourse with the world is imprinted by the astral upon the etheric body. It always takes a certain time to be established there. Now compare this fact with another. That is the fact that in everyday life we repeatedly separate physical body and etheric body from the astral body and ego in sleep, and in waking unite them. We may therefore say that between birth and death there is a somewhat tenuous connection between the physical and etheric bodies on the one hand and the ego and astral body on the other. For the physical and etheric bodies always remain together, between birth and death, and the astral body and ego remain together also, but not the astral and etheric bodies. Every night they separate. There is thus a looser connection between the astral and etheric bodies than between the etheric and physical, and this is again expressed in the fact that there must be a se- in a sense that there must in a sense be a certain parting of the astral and etheric bodies before what we have experienced in the astral body is imprinted upon the etheric body. When some event influences us, it does so, of course, in the waking condition. This means it works upon the physical, etheric and astral bodies and the ego. There is, however, a difference in their reception of its effect. The astral body takes it up at once. The etheric needs a certain time for the impression to be so established that complete harmony arises between the astral and etheric. Does this not clearly and distinctly show that although all four bodies or principles of the human being experience each event or occurrence that affect us, there are two currents in us, in us which do not run the same course in relation to the outer world, one stream needing longer than the other. There we have the same as we have in history, the same too as we have in the cosmos, moon and sun, primal pagan evolution and Christianity, and now etheric and astral, always a differentiation or interval in time. Thus we find this interaction of two streams appearing in our ordinary life, two streams 
which come together and combine in our lives. It cannot be grasped so simply as to permit the causes and effects of one stream to wholly coincide with the causes and effects of the other. These things are of fundamental importance for our consideration of the universe and life and cannot be dispensed with if one wishes to understand the world. There are other facts, too, which people also entirely overlook nowadays. And what do all these things show? They indicate the existence of a certain harmony between cosmic life, history, and the life of individual human beings. But a harmony not constructed as is usually as is usual today in people's efforts to account for everything through biological and genetic perspectives of a quite materialistic kind. The consequence is that we cannot make do with a single kind of astronomy but need different astronomies, one of the sun, another of the moon. If we have two clocks, one always a little slower than the other, then the latter will always be ahead. But we should never assume that the cause of the one lies in the other. That would be impossible. So, too, although there is a certain regularity and lawfulness in the one being always the same amount behind the other, the two streams of which we have been speaking have nothing to do with one another. They only work together through the fact that I observe them together. Solar astronomy has nothing to do with lunar astronomy, though the two work side by side in our universe. It is important to bear this in mind, and just as we have to distinguish between solar and lunar astronomy in relation to the movements of sun and moon, so too must we distinguish in history between what takes place in us through succeeding periods of civilization and what takes place in us through the cycles of time, whose central point is the event of Golgotha. These two things work together in the world, but if we wish to grasp them, we must discriminate between them. We see the prototype of historical time in the cosmos, and we see the ultimate expression, I do not say the effect, but the last expression of these universal facts in our own life, in the two or three days which must elapse before our thoughts have become so firm, in quotes, that they no longer remain above in the astral body where they may appear as dreams, as it were, of themselves, but descend into the etheric body and must be recaptured by our own active memory or by something that reminds us of them. Within us, therefore, one movement flows into the other. Just as we have to realize that there is a lunar current which, as it were, generates independent systems or structures of movement. So we must realize that in our human constitution, our physical and etheric bodies are more closely connected with one aspect of the macrocosm, while our astral body and ego, in contrast, are more closely related to a different aspect of the macrocosm. Modern science casts a veil of darkness over such things, that confuses everything, positing a cosmic mist which forms into a ball from which the sun, moon, and planets emerge. This is not the case. The sun and moon are not of the same origin, but are two streams running side by side. And just as little can man's e human ego and astral body be traced to the same origin, 
as his physical and etheric bodies. They are two different streams. In the book title Occult Science, you can find that these two streams must be traced back to the sun stage of evolution. Then, to be sure, on going back from the sun to the Saturn stage, one comes to a sort of unity. This, however, lies very far back indeed. From the sun stage onward, there is a continual tendency for two streams to emerge and run side by side. In this account I wished to show how necessary it is to throw light on the parallel between cosmic existence, history, and human existence in order to arrive at a view of man's relationship to cosmic movements. We have seen that a proper understanding will lead not to one astronomy, but two, a solar and a lunar astronomy. Similarly, there is non-Christian evolution, our natural science is still heathen, and Christian evolution. In our day many people try to prevent these two streams, which have met on earth in order to work together, from their proper confluence. Consider, for instance, how the whole drift of a book such as that by Traub, uh, footnote Rothsteiner als Philosoph und Theosoph, Rothsteiner is philosopher and theosophist by Friedrich Traub, to begin 1919, end of footnote. The rest of the book has no meaning without this, consists in the claim, quote, Yes, Dr. Steiner wishes to unite the two streams, heathen and Christian. We will not let that happen. We want natural science to remain heathen, so that there may be no need to bring about anything in Christendom which may reconcile it with natural science. Close quote. Of course, if science is allowed to be heathen, Christianity cannot unite with it. Then people can continue to say, quote, Science is carried on externally, materialistically. Christendom is founded on faith. The two must not be reconciled. Close quote. Christ, however, truly did not appear on earth in order that the heathen impulse should increase in power, separate from and alongside his impulse. He came to permeate the heathen impulse. The task of the present time is to unite what man would keep asunder, knowledge and faith, and this must come to pass. Therefore attention must be drawn to such things as I indicated in one of my recent public lectures. On the one hand, the Church has decided that cosmology should have no place in Christology, and on the other hand, cosmology is now based on the principle of the indestructibility of matter and force. Footnote the word force on this page is generally rendered English, excuse me, is generally rendered energy in English scientific writing. End of footnote. But if matter and force are regarded as indestructible and eternal, this leads to a trampling underfoot of all ideals. And then Christianity too is meaningless. Only when what constitutes matter and its laws is regarded as a transitory phenomenon and when the Christ impulse becomes a seed of what will exist when matter and force no longer hold sway as they do now, but have died away, only then will Christianity, ethical ideals, and human worth have a true meaning. There are two great antitheses, the one arising from the final logical conclusion of heathenism, matter and force are eternal, and the other arising from Christianity, 
heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. These are the two greatest contrasts of outlook which can be expressed, and our age urgently needs not to be confused about such things, but with wakeful mind to look earnestly toward a right understanding of the world, in which moral human value and the Christian impulse in world evolution are not overwhelmed by the illusion of indestructible matter and indestructible force. More of this in the next lecture, the end of Lecture 12.